Welcome back to the Anarchist Monastery. A certain amount of fanfare because we've made it to season two. We're, we're back from our various travels, Hugh and I. There he is on the other side of the room, his usual Hallelujah. gurning, smiling face, all ready for us to go. Um, we've been on our travels and, uh, and we bring, what do we bring? Where have you been on your travels, Hugh? What have you been up to the last couple of months? I went to Britain. Okay, good. It was an amazing place. That's where we're coming from yeah, now. Well, we're in Yorkshire now. It's completely different. Okay. But I went to Britain and I went down south on an extraordinary trip to actually witness my sister-in-law being um, inducted into oh, one wonder, of the I lower... I wonder where that was going then for a moment. Yeah, okay. to witness my sister-in-law being inducted into one of the lower consultation um, comforting orders of the Church of England. The lower, the the lower what? The lower what? Orders. No, the lower... Know. Comfort consultation, what yeah, did you say? Yeah, so she would go around and see people in uh, care homes and things like that and right. uh, talk to them or, or, or talk to them about religious issues. Talk to them like about dying. Sort of talk to them about dying. Uh, well, definitely, um, yeah. Uh, right, we want your soul. We want, with, we want it. Working with people who are, yes, uh, in ter terminal illness. But she has just retired from her job, which was working for charities, actually, and she's taken this up in her retirement. So I witnessed her induction at the at Chichester Cathedral. Fantastic. While I was down there, I met quite a lot of people. I'm sure you um, did. Yes, and had some great surprises. But also, um, in no time at all, we were off to Essex. A place I know very well indeed, Hugh. Well, I mean, not a lot of people You're go You're talking to a to son Essex. of the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we absolutely loved the cottages with the thatched roofs, great barred field, great Dunmo. That's not an Essex I recognise at all. But we anyway. went to we went to Taliston, which is an, it's just the most interesting home in the, in Great Britain, which right. is all a fantasy world built in a council house, and we visited. George Bernard Shaw's um, country home. Okay, and then we the went Irish to playwright. we went off to Sky. So I'm only just back from, from Sky. Essex, Essex. Have they built that bridge then? From oh Essex my to Sky, goodness me! Finally. Yeah, we. Uh, well, Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. It took us. Well, I mean, we you take these things one one step at a time, and this was all with the sister-in-law, the wonderful sister-in-law, driving the car, getting us up there. So we had a wonderful time looking out over the locks. Were you in Oban as well? Do I remember you telling oh, me? Oh, and half in Oban. Yes, we did eat well in Oban. A, there was a fish restaurant that was on the quayside. We ate, yeah. looking at a huge, great trawler from massive platters, absolutely it's filled a gorgeous with port, different isn't shellfish. Oban looks looking out over the. Uh, over oh, the, we over were the surprised. It's it was gorgeous, a great isn't it? place. Yes, it was really nice. So, uh, Samuel Johnson stayed in a little hotel there with with Bosworth. In fact, yeah, wherever um, we uh, went in Scotland, we found that he'd he'd been there. Yeah, yeah. Johnson Dun Vegan Castle on Sky. Okay. Dun Vegan. Right. Yeah, and my wife said Dun Vegan. Yeah. D-U-N. Sounds like a dietary choice. It sounds like a care home for people who've given up being vegetarians. Okay. Dun okay. Vegan. Okay, Dun Vegan. Yep. Yeah. Very uh, good. What about you? Where have you been? Well, I've been in Rome. I've, uh, I've been doing some work in Rome. I've taught two courses there. Uh, one at John Cabot University, which was a, a creative writing class uh, called Writing the Eternal City. And another class of public speaking up at the American University of Rome. They were both amazing. I, I always have the most wonderful students. These are 18, 19-year-old students coming over from, uh, chiefly from the United States to do a, a five- or six-week summer course uh, in Rome. They can take credit. They get credit for that. They can take that back to their home university. I had the most wonderful time. They're very different classes. One was pretty much on site, which would have been the public speaking. But the writing The Eternal City, we just went out and uh, I sh we read, say, Freud on uh, Michelangelo's Moses. 
and so then we went to see Moses and we sat down at tables, had coffee, smoked cigarettes and, 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 and wrote a bit. And we did that for five weeks and it was just extraordinary. I absolutely loved it. What about them reading it back? Did you uh, have those sessions and what was it like? Did reading you get some their amazing writing. things? Yes, well, yes yeah, we yeah. had two workshops a week. So, so they would all bring their writing in and we'd workshop. And criticise each other's work. Critique, and, I think, oh, rather than yes, criticise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The full trip, the full writing holiday trip. Yeah, 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 exactly. Brilliant, and it was so brilliant. much fun. And the, the students, they, they loved it. Did you discover any talent? I, I always do. They're amazing. A couple of them were journalist students, the writers. So uh, I had a couple of really talented public speakers as well at the at the other university. I don't want to sort of uh, uh, let one lie fallow at the expense of the other. They were two They'll really engaging courses. Yeah, I think so. I hope so because the I right. I, I chatted to them. I made them. I made them uh, uh, follow the Anarchist Monastery podcast. They had no choice. Otherwise, you failed the course. And they were a bri- yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a brilliant set of students. Then. They were fantastic. Great. So Rome was amazing. I uh, I I was also at the uh, the non Catholic cemetery, also known as the Protestant cemetery, mm, but rather it's the non Catholic cemetery, I think, which is where uh, John Keats is buried next to his friend Joseph Seven, and it's where Shelley's heart is also also buried. I say that, um, that gives me a, a really nice segue because we have a guest uh, we today. Do. We will we come do. back. Uh, we're going to come <laughs> back. We're going to come back to uh, to our, our special guest and what my connection is uh, with John Keats. Um, so we've had a, you've had a good, uh, a good break. Are you ready to, are you raring to go for season two? This is it. Season two yeah, you can't Episode hold me back. One. I got so much material. Right, uh, it'll last us to to the end of season. To, to two. the end of time. Yeah, I mean, I could just go back over what we did on our holidays. I'd be quite happy. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, maybe there we go. We should maybe come to that. But I, I'm refreshed, a little tan. I've eaten well. I'm feeling great. It'll last about another ten days. Great. And then I'll be found. Yes, I'll be found weep, you're weeping in, in a gutter somewhere. You are in Britain. You were in Rome. You know, brilliant. Yes, yeah. well done. Not a happy translation. I a, dif- a difficult, a difficult, a difficult. Birth, yeah, a difficult yeah, uh, move. Okay, yeah. so look, we, I, we've had a letter. We've had another letter. I, we have, we have the, the best uh, letter writers uh, um, on the planet. They write to us. They love the podcast quite clearly. Uh, you can write to us at uh, the Anarchist Monastery at gmail I'm not going to spell that out because last time I did it, I spelt it wrong, and we got no emails. Um, we've had an email in from Cindy, uh, in Eastern Kentucky. Okay. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know much about, about Eastern Kentucky. Uh, although I do, I, I did drink a bottle of a Kentucky bourbon once and it was called Grand, Grandpa's Knob. Is it Wizard of Oz land? Right. I, Grandpa's Knob was the, uh, the name of the bottle of yeah. bourbon. And I'm, I'm horrified to say it, it, it stuck in my throat for weeks afterwards. Yeah. Is it, is it Wizard of, of Oz land? That Kentucky. Kentucky? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think the Appalachians are such, but I think, uh, I think Kentucky, yes, is, 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 as you would say, well, Wizard of So who are we hearing from? We're, he- we're hearing from Cindy. Cindy, yes. In yeah, the she red slippers. Cindy writes in and says, uh, Greetings from the Appalachian Mountains. I bet I'm your first from these parts. We like it calm round here, I can imagine, right? She goes on to say, In the Anarchist Monastery graphic, which I really like, it's harsh and soft at the same time, like you two, I suppose. In the graphic, there's a Latin inscription. It's not all visible, which will leave you guessing, I guess, says Cindy. My question is, what does the Latin mean in English? Let's start there. She says, kind regards from a peaceful Appalachia. 
Now, you, you're aware of, obviously, of course, you're aware of the graphic that accompanies the podcast. You've got... I can see it. You've got a T-shirt on. We had a letter in a few weeks ago about um, merch. about merch, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We've got Anarchist Monastery T-shirts. Now, they're quite sharp, actually. I, I quite like it. I think it's good on... Black T-shirt with the graphic... Mm, large size. Large size, about the large. size of a shoebox. Whatever size you are, get a large one. Get a large. About the size of a shoebox is the graphic. It looks amazing. I'm looking at the very thing that Cindy's talking about now. There's a Latin inscription, and I think it comes from uh, St. Peter's in Rome. Yeah, and I've got it upside down. Right. You've got it upside down. Well, no, it's not upside down. You're just, you're looking down on it, which oh, means right, it's right, the right. wrong yes. way up for oh, you. Um, the, now, the inscription reads, it's a, uh, we've got, um, excuse my Latin, I'm sure I'm going to be shot to death by Latin speakers afterwards as a result of this, this horrible attempt. What we have is et in coalis ego rogavi pro te. And what does that mean? It means, and in heaven I asked thee. Because it's about, I think it's about Jesus talking to uh, St. Peter. And it's not the entirety of the quotation. The quotation in its entire, and in heaven I asked thee, such, so that your faith would not fail. So that our icon for the anarchist monastery yeah. has this motto... And in, in heaven, heaven, I asked. I asked. What a brilliant thing! It's quite good, thing. isn't it? We couldn't have made that yes. up, could we? Well, it, it was. It, it was, was a great choice. It was Ian, our sound man, who selected yeah. it. Yeah. Brilliantly. Yeah. Do you think he meant it? Of course all he along? did. Of course he did. He Does, researched it for weeks. He's Latin, and it's that good. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of people have got sound men with that good Latin. I don't know. I don't know about a lot of people. And in heaven, I asked thee. Yeah. Well, we'll take that as a... Uh, as I a, asked for thee. I think prote, for thee. I asked for thee. And in heaven, I, I asked, asked for thee. For now, that could be an address to our listeners, That's couldn't it? That's completely different. Couldn't it? That could be an address to everyone who's listening right and now. In heaven, we I asked, asked we, for we thee. We prayed for you to come, listeners, and there you are. How an about that? An anarchist monk. An anarchist monk is somebody who asks in heaven for the other. Yes. Well, it's one of my definitions of God, that God is a gymnasium... Okay. In, in which we exercise the ability right. to acknowledge the other. And at his right-hand side, he has what? Weighty dumbbells? Is that what we're talking? What God's, he has, God's dumbbells. What he has, you, it's because you've got to love the other enormously, you have to practice on something it's safe to love enormously. Right. So you have God and you learn to love God with that enormous a love. A spiritual gymnasium. When you about. have developed that muscle, you can bring it to bear on your fellow human being. Bring kind. your muscles to bear. Your, that love. And so God is that gymnasium where you right. exercise the love yep. that you need to bring to each other. Yeah. I don't right? know whose idea of God this is, though. You're so talking in heaven about, I ask thee. You're talking about what kind of God are you talking oh, about? Oh, the dictionary definition of God. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, big G or little G? Oh, yeah. Big G. Oh, you big know. G. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. See. but okay. a dictionary definition, the divinity, you know. Okay. But you, wherever the divinity is, you must love the divinity. I prefer mine pan, to be honest with you, like across the spectrum. Yeah, but you love your, do you love your God? Uh, I don't actually have a God, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to tell you about that and inform the listeners. I don't yeah, have a God. Well, I was a Buddhist for, for a number of years. The God is internal. But there is such a thing as God. Because uh, it's a I'm, word that it, it that actually refers to yeah. a particular understanding. Yeah, I mean, right? I, yeah, it's a meaning. It's a meaning. I, I understand its yeah. lexical meaning. Yeah, yeah. So, I just don't believe in in a, the existence of a god as an external deity. I, I don't. But that's another. Yeah, that's yeah, for yeah, another yeah, podcast. Yeah. But you can love these things that don't exist because they won't turn around and hurt. I loved. I loved. Um, I had imaginary friends when I was a child. Yeah, I loved them. Yes, they never existed. But you were horrified to discover but that. But you were actually exercising the ability to love and exploring the ability to love in loving them. Yeah. 
you are becoming a more loving person for having those friends. About the age of three. And you can become a very, very loving person, imagining a God and with love, that God with the love you would love a God with. Right. And then when you're that strong, you've got a heart that big, then bring it to your fellow man. So, okay, very good. So, so Cindy, uh, we'd like to thank you very much um, for uh, your, your letter. We're thrilled then that Ian has found for us this amazing uh, Latin inscription from St. Peter's uh, uh, um, in Rome. And, uh, and it's, it relates, as far as I'm concerned, it relates to the listeners. And in heaven, I ask Yeah, them. I think that's absolutely right? wonderful. That's, I'm that's, quite prepared to sail under that uh, Motto Fantastic. There. So thank Those you. Those instructions. Thank you very much. In heaven I ask. Yeah. Me. Thank you very much, um, Cindy, in Appalachia, our first, uh, or clearly our first letter from, uh, from, from, from Eastern Kentucky, from that yeah. part of the world, yeah. indeed. I'm very, very happy, we're both very happy, um, to have our first, our first ever guest on the Anarchist Monastery. Um, it's Richard Marriott, who uh, is a uh, a friend of Hughes. I think you've you've met uh, you've met twice now. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. We just hang around front doors and drag people in as they walk by. You've met Richard twice now. Richard is a is an enthusiast on of uh, of John Keats and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And we're going to be just in a couple of minutes. We're just going to be chatting. Or Richard's going to chat to us about this fascinating subject. A lot of so it's a literary segment uh, coming up, which you and I are always very happy to, uh, to entertain. After that, uh, we're going to be uh, previewing very briefly um, our, our episode two, which is an interview with the uh, European philosopher Lawrence Sorgner, a, a friend of mine who I sat down with in a baking recording studio at John Cabot University in Rome. Uh, Stefan is uh, a philosopher of transhumanism and post-humanism, probably the two hot buttons in, in world philosophy right now, you know, at least in continental Europe, uh, philosophy right now. I've, so I've bagged an amazing interview with Lawrence Sorgner. That's coming up uh, as a special episode. I think we're going to make that episode two. And before we go today... Uh, it's one of our national days again, uh, Hubert. You know oh, what? Yes. You know what national day it is today? No, I don't. Tell me. We're going to have. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about National Air Traffic Control Day. Oh my God! So I would like your uh, a story of uh, a flight or flights. I'm I'm looking over at Richard right now. Richard, you're going to be involved in this as well. You're going to have to chuck us a story about a flight or uh, or flights that you've taken. Right, onwards. Um, so, Richard, welcome to the Anarchist Monastery. It's wonderful to have you here. It's fantastic to have uh, have a, a, a third leg of the stool, so to speak. Daniel, Hugh, thank yes. you. I'm I'm cutting across you. I'm 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 beginning. Thank you. You've offered me uh, well sharing your audience, your lovely audience, Cindy and and so many others. Thank you for that. Um, and you've given me so many ways in to begin talking about Keats and. Uh, Fitzgerald. And I think I'd like to pick up actually and just begin as you've been talking about your travels. I'll tell you a little bit about mine. Oh, good. Yes, please do. I'm here, obviously, to talk about not York, but New York. So it's it's local. It's following your area oh, from, of interest. From, the gap, from Fitzgerald. From Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New York being where the, the novel is set. Um, but I arrived here via Pontefract or Pomfret, Pontefract, where I spent last night. Okay. And 
so you know you've talked about your travels to Rome. I'm going to tell you a little bit a little bit about my experiences in Pontefract. So okay. I, I stayed in a hotel last night um, where there was a a prom ball. Now I've never been to What's one, of, one these. of those. It's an American thing, obviously Fitzgerald, America. It's American. Okay. So there's this prom high school thing going on. Oh, and a prom. Yeah. It's a party. It's a End huge party. Well, six form. And of course, and as you know, Great Gatsby, all about parties, yeah. two big parties. Um, and the clothing there was glamorous. I mean, eye-popping glamorous. You've never seen so many silken dresses and wonderful colours. There were dresses that were, for example, well, coral, apple green, lavender, faint orange. I know what you're doing. Right? I'm reading from The Great Gatsby. It's the shirts, isn't it? India, it's the shirt in The Great Gatsby, Indian blue. So there was all that happening. We'll come back to that. Yeah, We'll sure. come back to that, I'm sure. Anyway, um, I left all that left all the music playing and i retired to my room and i got up this morning i'm a keen swimmer by the way oh, good. you know that yep. and i went to the local swimming pool swimming pool gatsby's death place he's shot to death and shot then, to death yeah. anyway came i came out alive i came out i escaped that i came out alive no red leg of transit for me left in the water okay and i was on my way up here to the recording studio um and I knew that Pontefract Castle was the death place of, of Richard II. Correct, correct. Absolutely, you know that. And, of course, I'm very fond of that play. And the, Shakespeare's Richard II. Shakespeare's Richard II. The place is in ruins, um, and, of course, it right. wasn't, wasn't properly... I know that feeling well. <laughs> it wasn't properly open. But I wandered around and I found the dungeons, and I actually took a photograph of the entrance to the dungeon, the arched entrance to the dungeon, where I imagine Richard was taken in, and, of course, where he was visited by his loyal groom... It's right at the end of the play. And at the end of the play, he's conversing with the groom. Omel, is that the name of the groom? No, the groom is just the groom. The groom, okay. So he has surround, he's surrounded by enemies and the groom comes in. He has the lovely, I like this line, by the way. I wasn't going to say this, but it's a, a line <laughs> I take very personally. The groom comes in and he sees the groom as a friend and he says, love for Richard. It's my name, just to remind the listeners. Yeah, exactly. Cindy, yeah, yeah. Cindy, Richard talking to you here. But it's this is a different Richard. This is Richard II saying, <laughs> love for Richard, strange brooch in this all-hating world. Okay. And as he That's talks beautiful. to the groom, it's beautiful, and the best bit's coming up. As he talks to the groom, um, the groom is describing second hand it's a narrative structure so we're going to see this again in the great gatsby later the yeah. groom describes to him bolingbroke's coronation now bolingbroke is the man who's imprisoned him it's his cousin his cousin for god's sake mm. who's imprisoned him mm. and stolen the throne yes, and everything yeah. and richard looks at the groom and he says rode he on barbary now barbary is his horse yes his disloyal horse, who's carried his murderer, well, his imprisoner, he's about to be murdered, who's carried his prisoner and usurper. Yeah, oh, that's got a sting, hasn't it? Disloyal horse. He's got a great line on it. I can't remember. That's got a sting. Anyway, there's a kind of vehicular confusion or mm. anarchy there wow. in that the wrong person is on the horse. Okay. Now this... That describes the podcast perfectly, doesn't the, it? The, the, well, uh, you're, now, you obviously know your, you know your great Gatsby, um, so you're probably already... I wouldn't go that far. You're probably already ahead of me to the anarchy, Anarchist Monastery, yep. Anarchy York, the anarchy in New York, mm. which happens um, when they go to New York. This is Gatsby, right. Gatsby, his 
lover, Daisy Buchanan. Yeah. Daisy's husband, Tom. Mm -hmm. The narrator of the story, Nick. Mm -hmm. So Nick in the story is telling is telling the story of yeah. Gatsby and his love for Daisy. Let me just say quickly, then, The Great Gatsby, for our listeners. Go um, on. It's uh, written by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, in the early 1920s, I think. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a rock star moment in 20th century American literature. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily well-written, uh, almost a long short story. It's also a long prose poem, as far as I can tell. It takes, it takes place in New York and Long Island. Um, Gatsby himself is a, a, a multimillionaire who either exists or doesn't really exist. That's something quite interesting I've been thinking about with regards to John Keats and the idea of disappearing into nothingness. Um, so anyway, Gatsby is, a, is, a, is a, a Long Island socialite. Everyone piles out to his, his parties. Uh, there are good guys and bad guys. It's also a love story. It's a story of impossible love at the same time. Uh, as I, and as I said, it's an absolute rock star moment in uh, 20th century American literature. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an A-list a, a celebrity of books, isn't it? Correct. As, as, uh, as was Fitzgerald briefly. As is now. As is now, yeah. yeah. I mean, he died. And he's just growing. He died fairly unknown, actually, I think, Fitzgerald. He did. He did. Rather like Keats, indeed. Yeah. Because we're going to talk a little bit about John Keats as well. We are. I understand. And the connection there would be then Keats's uh, influence on the work of Fitzgerald. Now, it's quite close to my heart at the moment, uh, having just come back from Rome, having been to Keats's grave uh, at the non-Catholic cemetery with my students, which is a very moving experience for us all. There's a tiny baby buried there as well, which is the, the child, the son of Joseph Seven, who is buried next yeah. to Keats. There's a tiny grave behind them of Seven's 10-month-old son, I think. It's, it's, it's really moving. Mm. Um, so we have, we're going to talk a little bit about the connection between Keats. Now, when I say John Keats, of course, I'm referring to uh, the early 19th century, um, 1910s and, and, and sort of to mid-20s. 18. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, 19th century, 18. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you for the correction. That's brilliant. I need, can I take you everywhere? I, 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 want to, I, want to, I still want to finish my connection between Rodion Barbary right. and the oh, cars. We can, we, can we do that or not? Back, it's up to you. Come back. I just wanted to set the it's context. It's your podcast. I'm merely your honoured guest. No, but, you're, but you're, you, know, you are our honoured guest. Trample on my anecdote if you want, not Daniel. Not at all. No, not at all. I don't want to do it. I, I thought just, that would be Hugh's role, actually. I just wanted to set up some context. Thank you. No, no. I really, that's very helpful because I couldn't have done that as concisely as you have. So thank you. I, I'm just going to pick up on the confusion so you've got the wrong guy on the right horse right but of course good. it's exactly what happens um at the moment of myrtle's death myrtle being over to you daniel you're asking me well i'll, I'll say if you don't if you don't uh, if you like myrtle is the lover tom's lover tom's lover tom's lover who's killed by tom's wife daisy so daisy kills um her husband's lover yeah and she does it driving her lover's car. Yes. Are you getting the vehicular confusion? Wrong person, oh, nice. wrong vehicle, vehicular anarchy. I'm looking at Hugh's T-shirt here, vehicular anarchy. So the moment, he, the moment comes when um, Tom presses Daisy's hand and takes her towards Gatsby's car, which, of course, is incredibly important mm. in the story, and says, I'll take you in this circus wagon and... When that happens, that's setting up right. 
Daisy right. to drive the car. Wrong place, and wrong time. Wrong place, wrong car, wrong, wrong vehicle. Yeah, yeah she's Indeed. riding on Barbary, as it were. Indeed. Do you remember the colour of the car? It's golden. Yeah, it is. Exactly. And golden is so important in that story. It is, of course. Should we talk about gold now or should we talk about other things? I just wanted to say, as I was, I left Pontefract Castle, okay, oh, yeah. with all this buzzing around in my oh, head. Sure. And, you know, my satnav takes me past, past this uh, little housing estate. Keats Close, it says. Oh, Keats Close. I like that. And I thought, yeah, he Perfect. is. He's always He's close. He's always close. He's always close. Can I just go back and find yeah. out what? When did you first become interested in in John Keats and uh, and then and Fitzgerald as well? Obviously, you're a very well-read man. I can I can, I can tell that immediately. What shock was it at school, or at university, or, or you, what, probably what does that go back to? university? And mm. I, I think you know, I've done some teaching, I've done some lecturing, and so these things have just you know they they come in and out of focus during the course of your life. And I, I thought that um, yeah, I'd found I, I thought I'd found some really interesting connections between the two of them actually, which I I, I felt quite sort of proud of actually, and felt were unique. And then I come into the recording studio today and. Uh, Hugh here reaches into his brief, briefcase and pulls out a book and slaps it down. And, uh, you know, it's jo- John Bates is already the... A bit, bit the... late in the day to get that, if yeah. you're, you're right. Thanks, uh, uh, Yeah, right. but, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. Any, anyway, John, John Bates, who's John, Jonathan, John, ba- Jonathan, Jonathan Bates. Bates, sorry, Jonathan Bates. Only bright star green light. Yeah, which yeah, you quoted yeah. to me yeah, uh, yeah. earlier, um, yeah, has, has made the connection. But I think there's, do you know, it's such a rich field. There are so many sure connections are. and it's not just Keats. I said to you that my day started swimming um, and, it's, you know, in Gatsby's death place, it was my way of paying homage, as it right, were. Right, right. Um, and of course... He dies in water, death by water. He spends his whole life trying to escape from water. Uh, he begins, Indeed. you'll remember, as a clam digger and salmon fisher, yeah, grubbing, right. grubbing an existence right. out of the wet ground. That's and right. he spends his, and then he... And a yacht rocks up one day. A yacht, Dan Cody's yacht rocks up right. one day and the guy buys him duck trousers, ducks, <laughs> you know, the du- All the rage. It's intricately as patterned, as he yeah. said in his letter to... Um, yeah, to Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's, the novel is intricately patterned. So he's and he buys a hydroplane. He's got his duck trousers. His name is Jay, the bird that flies. He goes to eggs. It's all it's all bird stuff, isn't it? It is right. It's the, elemental. It's, it's a really it elemental novel. Elemental and elemental because, of course, the guy who shoots him, George Wilson, mm. is an ashen figure. Right from the Valley of the Ashes. From the ashes, right? From the yeah. ashes, and we're sort of starting to touch on wasteland stuff here, aren't we? Correct. Because the Valley of the Ashes the is wasteland. a wasteland, and there is the whole death by water thing. I there mean, is. his funeral is there is conducted in the pouring rain, right? And uh, and he di- dies in a swimming pool. So we've got that whole death by water thing, which he picks Richard, up from Elliot. Richard, where does yeah. where does uh, the Valley of the Ashes refer to in America? It's a particular location, isn't it? Uh, it's between Long Island I, and New I York want to reassure our listeners, it is not Pontefract. <laughs> yes, if there are, if yeah, that's yeah. what you're suggesting. No, it was, no, it's it was that, my midway that stop that between my home and here. We'd love to have listeners in Pontefract. Yes. But, uh, you have one this morning. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All over the world. We, we are everywhere. But we it's typical everywhere. of uh, Fitzgerald that every single thing that he mentions actually has a story. There's yes. something yeah. to be found. And the Valley of the Ashes is an actual place Yes. It's not Coney Island. It's, it's some, interstitial, isn't it? It's it between, is. It's, it's between. It's, yeah, it's a it's, between yeah. place. It's, it's an actual geographical place that he's referring yeah, to. So. Yeah. The, train, um, the train runs through it. There's a train stop yeah, and, and Wilson's true. garage is and there. And we're talking at the same time about Keats and we're talking about Fitzgerald. Right. So what is the connection between these two? Well, we've come to talk, to well, talk about. 
Well, I thought we might start with Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, and I think Daniel's got a recording there. I guess what I've got an absolute nugget. Wow! On uh, on on YouTube, I, I'm so excited because I haven't heard this before, no, Daniel. I've, but I know you've told me. Go on. I've dug up uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald reading Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. It's the got man eight, himself. It's had 18k views uh, on on <laughs> on YouTube. Not a lot. But I want to play, I just want to play the first uh, uh, 60 seconds of this recording. Listen to Fitzgerald's voice. Listen to how dramatic this all is, right, as well. Okay, here we go. This is, this is uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald reading John Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as if of him like I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drain. A moment since the leafy word had sunk. Tis not from envy thine happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer and full-throated ease. Wow, that's an intoxicating voice, isn't it? It's beautiful to listen to. Sounds like he's dying in the very moment. I know. I'm not sure about the way he says plots, actually. Plot. Plot, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, apart from that, well, what did he pick up from that? Well, he picked up the name of his heroine, Daisy Faye. Oh, did he? From the poem? Yeah, because, of course, we get the line, which he doesn't read to in the little extract we've just heard, happily the Queen Moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry phase ah. and then when uh, the narrator but the speaker keats i guess goes on his flight with the nightingale he cannot see what flowers are at my feet nor what soft in- incense hangs upon the boughs but he guesses the flowers from their odor so he guesses from the smell of the flowers as he's on this imaginary flight with the nightingale he guesses that he can smell the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves and the coming musk, mo- the coming musk rose. So he's intoxicated, he sounds right. it in your reading, Doesn't he's intoxicated he just... by all the smells. Well, this is how he describes or how Nick describes... In The Great Gatsby. In The Great Gatsby. Thank you. We're just moving again between texts. This is how Nick describes Gatsby's garden. Um, well, actually, I've only just realised this. The, the Keats line, in, the Keats um, stanza ends, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. And Fitzgerald opens the garden description with, with enchanted murmurs. Murmurous murmurs. With enchanting murmurs, Daisy admired this aspect or, or that of the feudal silhouette. That's his castle in the light because he can't see. He can't see. Um in the darkness. And so as he admires the garden, he smells it just like in, just like what we had in, you know, the Keats poem a moment ago. So he smells the sparking odour of jonquils and the frothy odour of hawthorn. Mm. Keats had all hawthorn, the plum blossoms and the pale gold odour of kiss me at the gate. So it's all the smells of the garden are there. I mean, he's, taken it from Keats hasn't he but it's beautiful it's the the it, it is indeed I just want a couple of words then about what Keats is doing here because he's he's writing odes and he's very famously 
uh, in around 1819, I think, uh, written uh, six or seven odes, uh, such as we've just we've just heard the opening to to one of them, um, Ode to a Grecian Urn, very famously Ode to Psyche, Ode to Autumn. Um, this is the absolute zenith, I think, of Keats's capacities as a poet, and he's world famous for the odes. He really he's really recasting poetry, is what he's doing in his own time. Um, and the odes are so rich and we're all forced to listen to them and read them and study them in fourth form as I was. And I hated every minute of it. Um, but I had no idea about what I wasn't well taught. I don't think because I had no idea of how these odes sound. I hadn't realized that, um, uh, a season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, for example, Keats's Ode to Autumn. It's just, it just fills your mouth up. It's, it plumps up your mouth rather like the fruit that Keats Auden, is writing on. Auden said. Yeah. Uh, Hugh's probably never heard of Auden, but I don't know. Maybe you know something about Auden, Hugh? I'm winding you up here. Yeah. Auden says of Keats like that wisdom. the line in Ode to Autumn, Most Cottage Trees, mm. that when you say it, it's as if you're munching oh, on oh, an oh, apple. Most that, Cottage Trees. Isn't that brilliant? Your mouth is full of apple flesh. It's brilliant, isn't that it? Is, That's that Auden. Is. Yeah, He's a genius, yeah. wasn't he? Oh, well, exactly. But for a long time, I've been fond of saying that uh, the poetry is the brand of literature. Mm. Okay. After, and, after dinner, in a tumbler, in a balloon. Yes. And also, it's so strong, highly um, distilled, you mm. know, concentrated with a kick like a mule. It means if it's poetry, it's toxic. You get Good. intoxicated by it, you get off on it. And in the odes, that is where, exactly that's where the potential of that. poetry to intoxicate is really strutting its stuff. It can do it there. And Keats is telling us that, that you can change consciousness mm. with this verse. You know, it's fermented. And uh, Richard, do you think Keats is changing uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's consciousness here? I'm keen to just just ask you what what exactly is Fitzgerald taking from Keats and incorporating into, for example, the Great Gatsby? Well, he's taking the lushness of the right. of the poetry, isn't he? I mean, I mean that. Synesthesia, there's a word, isn't it? That yeah. that pale gold odor. Mm. I mean, it's so wonderfully poetic. You're seeing smells. Yeah, right. it's gorgeous, isn't it? So he's taking all that. Um, the key thing that I think he's taking is, I think Daisy is the nightingale. Oh, okay. Keats, of course, yes, obsessed by, by mortality with his um, the death of his brother and his own. Um, incipient death from tuberculosis. Yes, right. This is the destabilising of the senses that comes with intoxication. Right. So what he's taking is Daisy has an immortal voice as the bird is an immortal bird. Yeah. It's a deathless bird and she... I forget who I forget whose word is which now. The bird is an immortal bird. Daisy has a deathless voice. Right. So Daisy offers Gatsby... She does. ...immortality. Correct. And it's that's what that's the chief thing that I think is taking from it, and that idea. Well, the other the, well, the other great line I think is that uh, Gatsby wants to be. It's, it's all Nick's words, isn't it? Lifted above the hot struggles of the poor, mm. um, she is the golden girl, the king's daughter, high in a white palace. She very offers, medieval, actually, at that point. Then, yeah, absolutely. Right? Well, it's a fairy tale image, yeah, and it's a very static it image, is. isn't it? It's yes. a very, it's a lo lovely image of of purity and corruption because nice some damsels. Those white gold colours, of course, you know, figure throughout the the novel, and we, you know, we just heard it in the pale gold odour. It it is about uh, well, it's about 
corruption. Daisy is, of course, she offers a, a, a deathless dream of immortality. There could be no such thing. She is corrupted and he is corrupted and his dream is corrupted. Um, but yeah, that's does what... Does she corrupt him or does he corrupt her? Or are they both corrupters? They are both corrupters it's, it's, and it's they are... Because basically, they are, I think they are a, both corrupted. Yeah, it's a menage a trois, isn't it, effectively, that we're asked to look at here? Yeah, it is. Yeah, but it's yeah. hopelessly idealised, so you know that it's not going to end well. Right. This is not real. It ends with the brutalities of, this of, is, of Greek drama, basically. Yes, this is practically like um, Kandinsky meets Disney in its okay. graphic appeal. Okay. Yeah, right. The little Kandinsky mermaid. That's 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 a good one. I think I think uh, uh, the idea of of corruption and and violence in the Great Gatsby as well. Leading, I mean, there's the extraordinary moments when 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 Tom punches uh, chambermaid, the chambermaid in the nose. Yeah, break, yes. breaks her out of nowhere. One of the most yeah. extraordinary sentences I, I think I've ever read in literature. And, it comes out of nowhere. And that wonderful scene mm. in. Um, so Myrtle, who right. Tom is having an affair with, right? Myrtle has a sister, Catherine. Tom is Tom is 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 uh, is um, Daisy's husband. Daisy's husband. Daisy's husband. So Gatsby's in love with Daisy, mm. who is married to Tom. Mm. Tom is having affairs and punching and yes, punching chambermaids, isn't Extraordinary. he? Extraordinary. Um, and so early in the novel, Tom takes our narrator Nick. Mm. to a party at Myrtle's sister's apartment. That's now, right. this is Catherine, and there's a fight there, isn't there? Or somebody gets punched, right. and we end up with blood all over the tapestry yeah. of uh, Versailles, which is a, just a, another Ex stunning image. That's where the novel's heading. Yes. In other words. Is, in other, the violence is there throughout, yep. so that the violence at the end is never surprising because the violence has always been close to the surface. And um, when you were talking about that idea of corruption, it's there in the heart of Daisy's name, isn't it? Because Daisy is, mm. of course, a white flower with a gold centre. It is the gold, it is the money that corrupts uh, the purity and corrupts everything. Fascinating. And just bringing Keats back in for a moment. Of Good call. course, we've thought about the blood and the the violence that we get, and we get the blood in the in the very in, in the staining the swimming pool in the very last scene, yes, and we get indeed. the blood in uh, in that fight. It doesn't end well for Gatsby. On. Let's be honest. It, no, it's no, it doesn't. Um, but where was I going with that? Ah, yes. So when the red blood runs into the white and the gold we get those pink colours and mm. that pink is also another colour of corruption that runs through the novel and it's often a, a rosy colour when we first meet um, Daisy and her friend Jordan. The, the, the golfer. The golfer, mm. um, the white clad but golden skinned, golden again, yes. corrupted by money golfer. They are in a rosy coloured room. A woman golfer, actually. Yeah, and, and, there's, and, there's, and they're in this rosy coloured room. And of course, where does, where does Rosie fit in in Keats? Well, Rosie is the, the rosy hue at the end of The Ode to Autumn, which right. we were talking about earlier. And that is the corruption of autumn. So the yeah. rosiness is the colour of corruption in Keatso towards yes, I was reading and an extraordinary thing corruption today. in yeah. go on I'd love to hear what you've been reading an extraordinary thing today about the color well Daniel wouldn't but I would about the color rose oh yes um in Keats's life and why it is he sees this rose color mm. when he is in this state of extraordinary intoxication and mm. sort of um suspension mm. that he describes right at the very beginning 
and it's one of the symptoms of laudanum. I thought you were going to say that. Mm, it's one of the symptoms of taking laudanum. Have you taken laudanum, Hugh? No, I never have. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, good. Should be. Don't take too much because it might be the last thing on your bucket list. Well, yes. <laughs> homeopathic quantities only, homeopathic I think, is what we exactly. advise. I'm yeah. very curious about it, but I was uh, astonished to see how um, even and dead it made your feelings, although you could see things all mixed up with evenly suspended attention, as it were, and in that state. Quite trippy, you're saying. So, you're well, talking... yeah, yeah, numbing. And a mm. drowsy numbness drowsy pains numbness, my yeah. senses. That's good. That's the opening line of, uh, the second line of, yeah, of Keats's yeah. Ode to yeah. All. Yeah. So it's impossible to talk about um, opium no, and the it's romantics without actually looking at Keats's Odes as well. Right. And uh, in this book that I'm reading, it's sort of apologised for mm. right at the end. You might not think Keats is associated with laudanum or drugs, but if you look at his work, you can see it's through and through. And he was a doctor. Oh wow! And he there was very—he was very Keats. used to prescribing. Keats was a doctor. Yes, he, he trained a, as a doctor. Uh, he was a dresser, I yeah. think, in in theatre. Yeah, he, said, meant he, he, he went the, he, well. He went to lectures to become a doctor, but abandoned it. But he worked yes. as a dresser, so he staunched the wounds. In other mm. words, after so the he was—he was very familiar. But it, it, to him, it was. Oh, well, he'd have seen that. Um, yeah, that diluted red colour, wouldn't he? Yeah. But yeah. it's not—it's not the sign of somebody who's dissolute. Yeah. That they are taking opium uh, is not a sign of somebody who's dissolute or lost control. It was a normal remedy at the time right. for toothache, as we know, mm. with Keats. Yeah. Um, and uh, a, an accident that Keats, that Keats had had with his eye. No, right. toothache with Coleridge. Oh, and Coleridge was smacked yeah. off his face most of the yeah, time, Yeah, I know, but, he, but uh, Kublai Khan actually started up. Um, when he had taken laudanum for a toothache. Uh, Coleridge famously said, I, I have a smack of Hamlet in me. But what he really meant was, I have smack in me. Yeah, well, yeah. it's very addictive and dangerous. And yeah. Keats would know this too. Right. And so it's not something that uh, would be a large part of his life or that he would keep public. But um, it, no, it looks was something that nearly took him to his end. I mean, he speak, he writes of being half in love with easeful death. I yeah, think, well, you he? can see from the tone of these uh, odes and their sleepy mm. and narcotic tone. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That yeah. overtakes well, you when you read it. Fitzgerald's reading that was wonderfully he, narcotic. He he right, yeah. He's sharing this out-of-body experience he with is. his readers, yeah. which makes him extremely important yes. because he can handle other consciousnesses. Yeah. I really like the idea of, of this out of, when you talk about this out-of-body experience, the idea that Keats in then Ode to a Nightingale is both there and not really there. And I think the same kind of thing is happening in Gatsby as, as the protagonist. Mr. Nobody from Nowhere is uh, how Mr. Tom Mr. describes Nobody him. Mr. Nobody from Nowhere. And as a complete aside, it really reminds me of um, uh, Patrick Bateman in uh, uh, American Psycho as well, who is both, who's, tells us he's not really there yeah. uh, as, the, as the narrator of the novel. Um, but there's something going on, I think, with, with, uh, with Gatsby, uh, and and Keats being there and yet not really there. Does that speak to the kind of fabrication that exists in The Great Gatsby? The the the, the lushness, the splendidness, the richness of everything that just dis there. That disappears. Well, of course, it, it just evaporates. Evaporates. It, it evaporates it? at the end of the story, doesn't it? In the very yeah. the very famous hmm. closing lines hmm. where uh, Nick. Um, well, sees as as darkness falls, all the grand mansions, everything fades. Yeah, that's um, and right. And even the silhouette is gone, and he's and he's standing there contemplating all the, the yeah. fresh green breast of the new world Beautiful. as it must have appeared to the Dutch sailors. All the staff have left. 
Yeah. Remember? Or the, uh, he's, yeah. Just, he's got two or three new people in. Yeah. Uh, that Nick Carraway's never seen before. Uh, it's all gone. It's just, it's, the illusion has, has, it, dis- has... It has gone, yeah. It has to be said. This is taking us into um, La Belle Dame Sans Merci oh, territory. Nice. Okay. I think this could take us there if we wanted to get there. Tell maybe, us a little, yeah, yeah. One last thing I want to say yeah, about while we're talking on, about team, this. Yeah, we're talking about the effect of drugs and different consciousnesses mm. on the writing. It must be said, I obviously went to look to see if actually... Scott Fitzgerald had anything to do with alcohol, uh, heroin, or Lord knows. A lot of alcohol. It turned a about, lot of alcohol. He lived. He lived his life while he was writing Gatsby and others, struggling really, really uh, hopelessly did, yeah. with extraordinarily strong alcohol addiction. Yeah. And yeah. when you're reading uh, um, in his later work, you can read about it that was collected after his death, mm. and you see that he's absolutely epic. Yeah. This is his fight with alcohol. And so he's actually writing too and reading this stuff yeah. mm. in a state of altered consciousness. And this is something that when literature is studied, mm. I always feel is ridiculously left out of the study of literature. Yeah. Well, it depends. It's the effect what... of drugs and alcohol. And alcohol should... on Patrick, Patrick, read Patrick Hamilton, 1920s. I mean, people, people look at Auden and they, uh, his early poetry and so yeah. on, and they mm. find it um, disjointed and uh, very sparky and mm. it's very intimidating because it comes from all sorts of different directions. It does right. not feel modern and everything. Um, and he was doing all this on obituaries. Yes, you know, but well, it's yeah, very, it, it sort of tell, depends on it, whether you know, we're interested in the in the writer or the work, doesn't it? I, I, no, I, the work is actually affected by yes, the drugs. Of course, a, part, a part of me says I don't care what of, the writer is affected by I, the drugs. I, you see, I'm mm. I'm don't I don't care very much about the writer, death of the author, mm. and all that because I think once we start caring about that, we're back on that slippery slope to cancelling people, aren't we? We're going to cancel him because he's on Lord, and we're going to cancel him because he was a you know, it's had not affairs. That. We're going it's, to cancel people yeah. for their alcoholic and sexual, you know, um, indiscretions. And so let's oh, knows, look at the work. Yes, but the point times. is, is that our culture is built on the, our great works of art. Yeah. yeah. And that is where we live. And yes. it has been created by these extraordinary mind-altering substances all the way through. And that should be recognised in the study of culture. Where it's been coming from. Yeah, I understand it's that. The excesses, it's almost imp- the ex- but it's almost impossible to say in the writing which has been uh, uh, wh- which has been enabled by drugs and which has been enabled by not drugs. It's really, really, really difficult to take an author's work and say Coleridge, for example, and say, "Look at that! He must have been really smacked out of his head when he wrote that." So, for example, when the yeah, fact you can take, that. taking That's what a very you're superficial taking what you're saying, then yeah, Keats yeah. is pretty That's disingenuous, me. isn't he? Because he says uh, he's going to fly on the wings of poesy. He's going to trip on the wings of poesy poetry, yeah. and you're saying no, he's not. Right, he's just he's tripping he, on the wings of heroin. He's tripping on the yeah. It's just doesn't affect anything. It doesn't affect anything for me. It doesn't invalidate a no, word no, he no, wrote. It doesn't, no, it no, it no. It's no. just interesting for but me to rather, know what has our civilization been built on. What's rather wonderful though, isn't it, that uh, all these guys got themselves intoxicated on alcohol for Fitzgerald and opium for Keats. Yes. But what they Possibly. let us yeah. do is get intoxicated by their language. Like, and it, what they and produce it, it is intoxicating. That is a very, some very of good those, point. Yeah, some absolutely. of those chapter endings in Fitzgerald. in Fitzgerald are just stunning. But it does make us very aspirational. As Sucking a, on the pap of life yeah. and gulping down the milk of wonder. Oh, I like your language. Isn't, isn't oh, it? Give me the pap of life any day you like. Isn't it stunning? But we as consumers of art actually are young people and aspire to pro- the production of this sort of extraordinary crown of and jewellery 
in, in these different mediums. They too want to do this. They, uh, our culture is full of people who are longing to be artists, who are dying to produce art, and they don't realise... Uh, do no, you don't know that for a fact. You're, you're guessing. Uh, well, I, I've I, met I, a lot of people who value creativity. I've met a lot of people who don't have the yeah. faintest idea what creativity is and couldn't care less. Either. Yeah, but those who do, those who do are less aware of the, um, the role that intoxicants have played. Mm. in. And you can look at what intoxicants do. You don't have to take the intoxicants. It's as, it produces a state of surrender, and you can find that through Buddhist meditation as well. Right. You know, there's all sorts of ways of approaching this, but you need your mind to break down in some way and start resorting all the material that's yeah. in it. There are, and that's what yeah. the drugs help it with. It would be very interesting to see how Fitzgerald's mind was broken down, in fact, by the drugs that he was consuming, the alcohol. The alcohol, That he yeah. was consuming. There's a lot of, I mean, ob there's a lot of alcohol in... What, of course, he did was... It's everywhere, what, isn't what it? What he ended up doing was breaking... No, it's probably not strictly true, but he broke down Zelda's mind. She was the one who ended up in the lunatic she asylum, did, yeah, wasn't she his did. wife. And this is prohibition on at the time. Well, of course it is. That's what, that's what Gatsby's business so, is yeah, built yeah, on. So Gatsby's the whole business of the state is, is obsessed with alcohol at this moment. That's how Gatsby makes, makes, how he makes his money out yep. of drugstores. Yeah, drugstore so, alcohol, yes. grain alcohol sold under so the counter. Alcohol has that, a huge presence. That trip to New York, oh, yeah. which we began with, the, and, the yeah. anarchy in New York where they switch cars and uh, Daisy ends up um, killing Myrtle. Um, by hitting her by hitting driving her. Yes. Gatsby's car. Yes, and uh, it's, an, it's another odd... It's another odd breast image in the story, oh, isn't terrible. it? Because her, her left breast is, is ripped off like a flap. Horrible. And she, of course, thought. which of course takes us to the fresh green breast of the new world. Yeah. It is, of course, the destruction of all the the hope and wonder um, that well that Gatsby retains because Gatsby yeah. himself retains that hope, that sense of wonder, that sense of human possibility, right. despite all the money, despite all the, 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 the golden cars that we talked about and the flash parties and the, the prom dresses which I witnessed last night. Despite in Pontefract, all, in Pontefract, yeah. the home of the the home of Gatsby, right. um, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, despite all that, he still retains that faith, really, doesn't yes. he? In some possibility of being lifted above all that into the permanent fairy tale world. And where does of the he end King's up with daughter. all his faith and everything? Uh, well, he, back in my swimming pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. With, with being we, being shot by the with man a from, with a trail of blood just surrounding him. Being being shot by the man from the Valley of the Ashes. Yeah, we're a desperate species, and yes. this is our product. And we know by reading Great Gatsby, we actually come across ourselves. We do find ourselves. In we, our are, we are a desperate species. And, yeah, and I, this is our sorrow. He's writing one of our tragedies. That's not just the people in the book's it's tragedy. Not. It is ours. And our, it is our tragedy because mm. Gatsby Fitzgerald says one of the most powerful things I think he's ever said about the story. He writes in a letter to his publisher, Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's. Uh, his New York publisher, and he says, the summer I never did get over that book, the summer I was writing Gatsby. Mm. I never got over it. And that book is a book by Oswald Spengler. Yes. Who we still, still sometimes find reference to, and I always delight in it when we do in our broadsheet newspapers. And the book he wrote was called The Decline of the West. Now, The Decline of the West 
is about, well, he pictures us really as a car careering towards a cliff edge and that car is just loaded with materialism. So it, it is our materialism. It's all the material wealth which Gatsby accumulates, which yes, sends exactly. us careering towards that cliff edge and leaves, of course, in its wake the trail of dust or the... Because he himself is careering towards that cliff edge. Of course, absolutely. Um but of course, you know the the materialism, of course, and leaves us with the ash heaps, leaves us with the the valley of the ashes, because that's that's the detritus of uh, mm. of the that, industrialization. No, that, that, that nowhere, that liminal that nowhere, nowhere space yeah, between absolutely. Long Island and New York City, and indeed. it catches up with him because when yeah. when George Wilson shoots him in his swimming pool, he is an ashen figure drifting. His drift is an ashen figure drifting through the trees to shoot Gatsby. So it's also, it's a story of, well, it's a political story really of the revenge of the, of the ashen underclass of of Wilson's underclass. um, As he, as he invades the sort of the citadel of the rich Mm. and shoots Gatsby in his swimming pool. And more than that, put it in its time its context this is the 1920s this is the jazz age this right. is this Which is the age basically it's just about a byword of decadence yeah you absolutely know, everything i mean you know the world is going to end we just had the first world war nothing can be trusted anymore every single thing that people held dear is now in question mm. let's get pissed and this is a warning yep. this is you know it is very powerful it has to be said there's there are few books of that size too, it's small packs a punch it doesn't half. Right. It's great Gatsby is terribly powerful and lets you know where we are going mm. in our shiny black car in the night. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So so so, so he picked up on this um mm. Decline of the West, and we were talking about the poetry. So much of the poetry comes from Keats. It does. But actually if you re- if you look into Decline of the West you can find the lexicon of Gatsby in there. Uh, the ineffable gaudiness um, comes from Spengler. Ineffable gaudiness. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that yeah. That's described the part of my life that has about five years worth of my life. Right God, there. I envy. I so envy <laughs> your <laughs> life. I was ineffably Daniel. gaudy once upon a time. Oh, He doesn't look gaudy now, though, no, does he? All, all no, my, all my F's gone, mate. Yeah, yeah. Not, you've lost, you've lost, lost all your effability, Daniel. Yeah, he's, right. pulled, oh. he's pulled himself together. Oh, yeah. those were the days. Yeah. But, but Keats is a extraordinarily sensuous you could say that and, the, and so is Spengler yeah but in his in his is language he? Gorgeous, is he? Absolutely I loved gorgeous. reading about him on Wikipedia because he was mentioned in the you study of Keats just, I went straight there I was delighted read with the, him. just read the last couple of yeah, chapters yeah, and of course yeah, one yeah. of the things he goes on about is cars cars as the symbol of American materialism and that our novel as we've mentioned earlier the Tom in the car crash with the chambermaid the yeah. wheel comes off at the party uh, all the names, by the way, are car brands. So, is that right? So Buchanan is a car brand. Okay. Jordan Baker, they're all car they're brands. All car brands. How interesting. Nick Car Away. Oh, nice. Cars everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Where does Gatsby's name come from? No one knows where Gatsby's Gats, name. Gats, isn't it? Gats, isn't it? Gats. Right. Well, G E T Z, isn't it? I think it's. Yes. Oh, yes. No. It's is, it, is, it a, is it a Gadfly, or is it some kind of? The rule phono- is. Is it Gats? Phonological play on Bugatti. Or is it just easier than that? Is it just? Is it just someone who gets? Yeah. Get. Yeah. Gets by. Gets. Yeah. Accumulates. Yeah. Accumulates. Yeah. The rule is is in. Uh, the Great Gatsby. Everything means something. Absolutely, yeah. It's an, inter- it, it's an interpretable surface, and it's quite precise about what it actually stands for. 
It's Absolutely. not just what you think about it. There are things to investigate. I loved investigating Spengler because of that. And he was talking about how the we are living in the end times of the West, how civilizations actually have a sell-by date. And we in the West are rapidly approaching ours. Okay, let's, we, that's, that's a nice thought to, to leave us on. We'll take a quick break, I think, and, uh, and we'll come back to yes, the let's. Anarchist Monastery in a couple of moments. Welcome back to the state of mind that is the Anarchist Monastery. We have with us here in the first episode of season two of our podcast, Richard Marriott, who is talking to us about Keats and F. Scott Fitzgerald and their literary relationship. And uh, I believe uh, Richard is going to now look at La Belle Dame Sans Merci um, and tell us about how that relates to the two authors. Oh, thank you, Hugh. Yes, that that would that sounds fun. I'd like to do that. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to do that very much. Uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci is a very famous um, poem by Keats. It's not one of his odes. It's a ballad, so it sort of tells a story. And well, the story is pretty simple, really. It's got two narrators. It's got two main figures in it. We've got a narrator who's telling somebody else's story. He's telling the story of a knight that he meets. So the relationship is rather like the Nick Gatsby relationship in Fitzgerald's novel, which we were talking about in the uh, earlier part of the podcast. Nick Carraway being the narrator of Nick the Nick Carraway Gatsby. being the narrator, the narrator of there, The Great and Gatsby. And La Belle Missy has, a has this first-person oh, narrator. the Knight at Arms, yes. And he tells a story about how he met yes. this woman, and he tells, uh, tells a story of their relationship. Now, this narrative structure is, is usually attributed to uh, Conrad, um, who has a similar story. Joseph Conrad. The, Joseph Conrad, who in his famous novel about the same length of The Great Gatsby, so if we're yeah, short yeah, novel yeah, readers. Yeah. The Heart of Darkness. It's because it's there's nothing worse than a long novel, is there? I mean, you know, we, we need short we need short Gatsby's 50,000 and we need Heart of Darkness a little bit less. So we like short novels. Less is more. Absolutely every time. Well, Not in, even 50k either of them. No chance. 30K, no. Both. Oh, I thought you were talking about his publisher's advance there. No, no well, okay. About <laughs> Thruppence Hapney. Well, I want to hear is that the knight replies. He's asked a question. And he replies. Him, and he replies. Right, and he replies. Right. And, and then he tells the story. Now, most people attribute this narrative structure to the Marlowe telling Kurtz's story in the heart of darkness. And again, there's a number of parallels there. So Gatsby's posture when he is first seen by Nick with his arms out almost exactly mimics the way Conrad describes Kurtz's mistress because he has two women in his life. He has this rather dull, pale woman called My Intended and then he has this sexy beast, his African mistress. And anyway, there's a sort of connection there. So we've got this narrative thing now. The point about um, La Belle Dame Sans Merci is that we have this twin narrative structure. So the narrator gets the first two stanzas and then um, then the knight takes over replies. the story. Yeah, he, yeah. he replies and he tells a story of how he met a lady in the meads and... Are we grammarians? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, well, if we're interested in the grammar, the grammar of this is always kind of interesting Ooh, to me. Chuck me oh, a bit I of know. grammar. Okay, verbs. So, so what, what <laughs> verbs? That's, I want to talk about those, Hugh. Thank you. You set me off. Syntax. Oh, love it. <laughs> the sin. So, so what happens is... around verbs. Not when, verbiage, but when, verbs. Uh, when our knight first meets the lady, he's the subject of the verb. So he does all the verbs. He's busy doing stuff. Shall I tell you what he does? Tell just, us what he does. Just very briefly, yeah, what he yeah. does is this. Well, first of all, he says um, <laughs> he meets her, so he's the subject. I met a lady. I, the subject, I met a lady. I made a garland for her head. So he's done this for her. A bit presumptuous. Yeah, he made a garland. It's Get, courtship. I, I'm it's sorry. Courtship. If that's presumptuous. A bit stalky. You might need to cover your ears <laughs> in a moment, Daniel, because I, I can tell you, I can tell you're sensitive for all your ineffable gaudiness. Oh, you are a sensitive soul. Um I met a lady in the Meads. I made a garland for her head and bracelets too. So we know where they go. We got the garland. Can you picture the got the garland? Yes. We've got the bracelets. Yes. Cindy, you got the bracelets. Right. Appalachian Cindy, Cindy. Cindy, Cindy, please do not reenact the next part of our story. Because not only does he make a garland for her head and bracelets too, but he also makes a floral decoration for her. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Her fragrant zone. Was that the sound of Daniel's head hitting that's, the floor? That's amazing. I love a. I know, wouldn't it? I love a fragrant zone. Do you? Don't you? Oh, Daniel. Well, talk to me. Okay. Talk to me, poetry. Okay. Chuck he, me a fragrant zone. He makes a bracelet and, and he decorates her fragrant zone. Mm. He uses the word he, zone. He does, and of course, it's all very you know olfactory again. We've talked about olfactoriness earlier on. Yes. So even her zone mm. is fragrant. He makes he makes and anyway. Keats's beloved was famously called Fanny Braun, of course. And so I would I was about to say that's all about Fanny, isn't it? But I, I should move on from that. I period. think yeah, I yeah. think we're moving on. Should we get to yeah, his I think we have look, moved on. For is the it, sake of yeah. gender equality, let's move on to his pacing steed. Oh. Because the knight at arms has a pacing steed. Oh, I'm feeling rough and unsettled all of a sudden. Yes, d- go don't on. don't do as yeah. Well, well, don't 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 do this. He sets her on his pacing steed, and she makes sweet moan. So she's obviously enjoying the ride. Dear, dear, dear. I know it's more horses, yes, yes, more yes. horses, more cars, no, pacing steeds. Yes, she right. sets him on, and she makes sweet moan. And anyway, she sees nothing else all day long. Anyway, she she bends and sings a fairy's song, and then after that. The whole grammar changes. She does stuff for him. Hugh, we're in your territory now. She made me roots of relish sweet and honey wild and manna dew. So I think she drugs him, basically. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like it. Sounds, dr- like, a sounds yeah, like a potion. Yeah, she drugs, she drugs the poor guy up and takes her to her elfin grot. As you do. And then... <laughs> I, do you know, I thought you were better accommodated than that. <laughs> no, no, I always, I always picture um, Hubertine Towers. Can I use your nickname there? Please do. Hubertine Towers. Oh, there's loads of nicknames. Uh, as a sort of humongous, as a, as a magnificent hubris. palace, yeah. a sort of Gatsby mansion, far removed from a sort of stable or cow shed, let alone an, an no, elfin no, no. grot. Yes, I wish. Anyway, I wish. she takes him to his elfin grot and. Uh, he shuts her eyes, and that's about the last thing she does because she then lulls him to sleep. She's and, a siren, isn't she? Yeah, and then and then he dreams, and he dreams that. Um, well, he dreams the worst dream he's ever had, basically, as a nightmare. And what he dreams of is all her previous lovers. 
And they're all pale. They're that kind of, you know, Keatsy and pale colour. Of course, Gatsby becomes pale when he's um, had his fling yes, with Daisy. Yeah. He's all ash and pale. Um, I saw pale kings and, and princes too. Pale warriors, death pale were they all. And they cried, La Belle Dame hath the actually it's the hath in thrall uh, so she's down. enslaved to thrall, him yeah. Yeah. and what happens then well they all turn to dust and the valley of the ashes they all turn to dust and ashes he turns to dust and ashes all the previous lovers by the way daisies had lots of previous lovers did we know that bit of the story did we mention that i think so she's she's oh, really yeah she's been not myrtle not Myrtle. Myrtle is the loyal wife of George. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> and Daisy has been, um, has enjoyed the favours of many a soldier. Something I must ask. Yes. Uh, because it hadn't really occurred to me at this serious level to ask yeah. this question, but maybe you can answer me. What does La Belle Dame sans merci mean in French? Well, do you know what? I, I've, yes. looked, I've looked this up many times because you also think it says the lady who doesn't say thank you is what it ought to mean. Oh, without thank you. The lady without the, thanks, yeah. Yes, the, the lady, lady, lady who you. says wham, steed, yeah. thank you, knight, uh, or no thank you, knight. But I think it means she's merciless. I, it has to mean that right, she's merciless. Because right, 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 she's right, merciless to yes. whatever, you know, we read it as her being merciless. Um, don't we? She's been merciless to all these La guys. La femme fatale. She's a femme fatale, yes. Yeah. She has yeah, no yeah. conscience. No, so she's, she's merciless. She's, tur she's turned them all to yeah, dust well, and ashes. Yeah. And then at the very end, of course, uh, the knight is sojourning, sojourning alone. Yeah, He's alone yeah. in this place by the lake, this blasted place where nothing will grow. The sedge is withered. He is withered. He is withered like the lake. Um, he is, oh, sorry, like the sedge. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. We've got this, he's died by water. It's that Elliot death by water mm -hmm. thing again. It's the swimming pool in Keats. It's death by water. It's elemental stuff. And he's there uh, blasted and alone and listless and mm. without any purpose. Well, it's a really bad case of um, post-coital sadness that he's got. Yeah, the sedge um, is withered from the lake. Yeah, the sedge. And no, no birds sing. sing. We're back to and the nightingale. The, corner of the, the room birds crying his eyes no out. longer sing. Yeah. It's no silent. Heart. Yes, it's silent, and he can't, and he, he can't hear the nightingale. So he, yeah. something terrible has happened to him. If he's one of those knights that was going out after the Holy Grail or something, he has met an enchanter. Yeah. Who has him now in thrall. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, he, and that's where he is now. Yes. Yes. So what does Keats mean by telling people who read his poetry this story? Well, that's such an interesting sort of question to ask, isn't it? Here? <laughs> and by saying it's an interesting question, I'm obviously playing for time a little here. No, no. Uh, but it is an, in it is an interesting question yes. because what is, does is it, it mean? Is it just entertainment? Well, is it just eroticism? It, it, it is eroticism. Although Follow your dreams. Yeah. But, but be careful Nothing. what you ask but for. At be heart, what you, you see, I think it's a rather nasty, misogynistic little poem because the, fam the idea of the femme fatale who, um, who, you know, drugs this guy. Drugs yeah, that's him. a bit literal. So, it's a role. Well, it's he a allows role. himself to he be drugged. He allows himself to be drugged. Anybody he's, can play the femme he fatale. Thinks he's, he thinks he's the seducer. In fact, he's kind of drugged and he, and he realises that he's just... 
you know, on the pile of corpses that she's... Um... But we're living in a gender-fluid age and you could be the femme fatale now and that would be understood. There can be two... There can be two... There can be two women who are in a relationship. Not, thank not, you. That's no way to get other guests on thank, the show. Thank you, you, mine host. I, yeah, I, I, really. I, need, I need you that because... Um, but it's yeah. a role. What yeah. I'm saying is the femme fatale is a role. It is a role. It's yes, not a gender. It's a role. But it's also a fear. In a relationship, and you can be in that relationship, and you can be the femme now, fatale. Now, Hugh, I don't, I don't, I think you've heard of Freud, but you know, are you in any way related? That's a story for another time. I don't know. Mm, yes. Um, what it's a fear of being, um, sw- to, it's yeah. a fear of being swallowed up, isn't it? Of being absorbed by the woman, of being castrated. Mm. Because when the pacing steed disappears, does the pacing steed disappear? Being captured. Ins- does the pacing steed disappear inside the fragrance zone? I think it does. And at that moment, he can't see his pacing steed. Does it collapse at Beecher's Brook? Look, well, I think it's it's for all his concern. It's in Beecher's Brook. He feels castrated. It's that moment of cast, of castration. Well, I don't know if it's castration, but he's certainly captured a, by a moment of surrender. Physically, visually, he, has he surrendered. Flops, he flops. He, he flops. has surrendered. Physically and, he's and captured. physically and visually, he is castrated, and that's the Freudian fear. That's the male Freudian fear of of the all-consuming female accommodating Emasculated. Womb, emasculated. Boom. By, su- yes. by surrender. By, by yeah, well, by, by surrender. So does At this the stand, very moment yes. of penetration, he, feel, yeah, yeah, yeah. he, he appears this, castrated. Does this stand for men's anxiety about yeah, women? Yeah, of course. Of course it does. Of course it does. So this is where it's coming from. It's yes, huge. It's a, Fro- it's something it's that, a Freudian sexual yeah, anxiety so poem. So it's something that Keats is not frightened to express. This is why I love the anarchist monastery because I had no idea we'd be going there. Right? This is amazing. We're monastic and we're anarchic at the same yeah, time. Yeah, well, I've seen a little Ke- of the anarchy Ke- now. Yeah, Keats yeah, yeah, wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Keats, well, Keats went through a period of sort of enforced monasticism, didn't mm-hmm. he? I think. But mm-hmm. yeah, but he wasn't clearly. But this is a male anxiety. It is a male. And it's it, being it, expressed. Well, it's being expressed in the now, most extraordinary. Is you know, what, it? What, is it? Is it a male? Sorry, Hugh. I'm going to interrupt you here because I'm your guest and I feel this is my my, like, my, my right to speak. Oh, interrupt away. Yeah, yeah. Now. Is it a male anxiety or has Freud constructed it as a male anxiety? And once Freud has planted that idea, and clearly it's become my reading of Keats, but would it be my reading of Keats without Freud? That's the difficulty, isn't it? What is it? No, of course it wouldn't what is be. It, what is, no, it? No. is it Lacan who says that there is nothing outside the text? So well, yeah. I, I just want to catch no, up a little bit, with, just for the Derrida. listeners. I think you might be right. Derrida. I think it might be just for the listeners. A little, we're, we're throwing some names around now that our listeners might yes. well not know. We're talking about Sigmund Freud, I think, uh, the the uh, founder of psychoanalysis, uh, the founder of psychoanalysis, um, through uh, late nineteenth, early uh, through what early first three decades of the twentieth century, um, and uh, he is, I think, largely discredited today um he was seen he is seen uh, he was addicted to cocaine he was uh, somehow seen as quite misogynistic i think i see heads being shaked there yeah, uh, I not see, discredited i see heads being well i think that his 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 relationship with some of his patients puts him in very very Absolutely, sticky does, territory does, but very the work hot that he's water done, the work that such. he's done and the vocabulary that he's provided is Phenomenal. something that we still are arguing with him about right. so he's given us a way of looking and understanding. I, I think he's really Daniel, Daniel. Daniel talked about his relationships with his patients, and I think we can see that in two ways, can't we? Because one thing was they were couch jumpers, so they mm. went from being one minute they were a patient, 
next minute they had a psychoanalytic practice of their own. Mm. But one of the things now, I don't know if Freud was particularly guilty of this, but Ernest Jones, his follower, biographer, and the the guy who wrote the great Oedipus Complex essay on Hamlet, which we were talking right, right. about earlier. Which Laurence Olivier played up to, didn't he, in his yeah, film yeah, version? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, a Freud celebrity. Um, so so yeah. the other thing about those couch jumpers or those relationships was that so many of those psycho, psych, mm. early psychoanalysts had relationships, sexual relationships with their clients, which was... I, I think not not what not we ideal. do not what we do these days. No, no, not no, ideal. No. no. There needs to, yes. If you want to be cancelled, do that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Or, but they, obviously this is something that uh, culturally we were learning when people are in positions of responsibility, particularly when they're talking about psychotherapies and they have mm. uh, they actually have people's personality, as it were, in their hands. Yeah. They can have an extraordinary power over them. It's called transference and we were not used to what witnessing this, but now it is much, much more regulated and people are more aware of the dangers. But the point is, back then, in the, the early uh, 19th century, this was a male anxiety mm. about the power of women. Well, you see, but no, also, that, take, that takes me back to what I was saying. Good, I'm going to interrupt you again. Keats, that would be great. Was it a male anxiety or... Has it been because you're I mean, you, you were right a moment ago, Hugh. Of course, we've got so much vocabulary. Re, we read the world through Freud. But as you were correct me, Derrida, there is nothing outside the text. Um, we only see things that have been put into words. Can we have a little moment on Derrida for this? Just just a second, second. Could you just tell us who Derrida was? French philosopher. There, okay. were, there were loads of them. We Good might enough. we might mention Louis Althusser as well in a moment. Right. Another French philosopher. The reader is the writer. The, there were loads. The point mm. is that you would not see a tree as a tree if language didn't Louis Althusser interpellate, call it out from its surroundings. That's right. We only know things through language. We only distinguish things through language. A tree would just be part of the blur of what we see if someone hadn't drawn a, la a line around it and you know put the tree label on Absolutely. it. Derrida yeah. says that. Yeah. So if, if there's no word for it, we don't have it. But now we have male sexual anxiety, then Plenty we see it. We see it. We see it in Keats. Could we have seen it with Keats in Keats if it hadn't been had a line put round it so that we saw it as male sexual That's anxiety. That's one way of looking at it. The I other way of know. looking at it. So I, I'm kind yeah. of defending Keats a yeah, little bit yeah, here. Yeah. But one another way of looking at it is that uh, it is amongst the Bohemians and the Pre-Raphaelites these sort of figures it, that this is art movements in the Victorian age these sort of a medieval type figures of enchantresses with extraordinary power, like Maleficent in Wizard of Oz as well, um, are stock characters in storytelling. Right. You yeah. know? And it just makes it all the more thrilling and romantic that mm. she is this extraordinarily powerful creature who can take great knights and crush them like an insect. Is that what Daisy you know? does? Is she a, is she, this is, is part is, of is the she romance. Is she a Saint Merci? Uh, Daisy in, uh, in The Great Gatsby? Yes. There's a little bit of that in her, isn't there? Uh, when you talked about this sort of medieval, the, 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 medi the idea of the medieval knights, and you were mentioning that earlier. The other side of the whole story, of course, which we haven't even touched on, is it's quite simply a courtly love story. Mm. It's about a you know a man, the knight Gatsby, the knight who Seduced, falls, yeah. falls in love with, is obsessed with. Yeah. A married woman. That's the heart of courtly love, isn't and it? And being years apart from... Being, yeah. Right? The idea of the knight 
and then can't off. fulfill it because it was uh, something because she's married. She's unattainable. Well, he's, she's not, married. he's not there either. Yes, yeah. he's unlicensed. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So he he you couldn't know, help himself. He was drunk. He yearns. He yearns for adores puts on pedestal, all those sort of things mm -hmm. we say about courtly mm -hmm. love. Um, and, of course, what he does do, which they don't usually do in courtly love, well, they do mm -hmm. do in some courtly love stories, is he fulfills his love, he consummates his love, and the minute it happens, well, it's it's the dust and ashes, isn't it? He's, he's dead, it's over. Because what matters is the dream. That's what matters to him. And in Daisy, he's found something to pick up, well, something that echoes that is commensurate with his capacity for wonder. It's so I'm decadent. quoting the last yeah, line of the yeah, novel yeah. again, because what fits what what Nick sees when he stands on the on the shore at Long Island and looks at all those mansions fading into the dusk is he sees the continent that flowered once before men's eyes, before the eyes of the Dutch sailors, mm. and was commensurate with their sense of wonder. And that's what Gatsby's seen in Daisy. But of course, as soon as the lights come on, what we see is a great tawdry material facade of feudal, you know, mock feudal castles. It's just a dream. He allows her to embody his dream. And of course, once he sets her on his pacing steed, if we can mix texts up a bit here. The yellow car. The yeah. Gold yellow when car. He, when he sets her on. But by want... the way, I wanted to say there's one little detail that's always fascinated me. And, and I think that one of you two will know the answer to this. Mm. Because I, I think I'm in the company. <laughs> Don't second guess. I think <laughs> I'm in the company of real experts here. Right. Gatsby's car has got a three noted horn. Oh. Like a nightingale. Exactly. Right. Like a nightingale. Yeah. yeah. It has a three note song. Now, is it that all those 1920s cars had fancy horns that had three notes? Was that a thing or? I, know, is I, it a I don't know much about or 1920s cars. I know a little bit about fancy horns, but I'm not going there. Yeah, I think it's the swanky car. He wants you to know the car is swanky. He wants you to know the car is swanky. Yeah, but is definitely. There, it, would, I think if you just had a Model T it's, Ford. It's a convertible as well. It is. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. it was a Model it's T Ford. It's got a million and one wind, windscreens, yeah. windshields. If it was a Model T Ford, it would go. What, what Sorry, I wanted what, to say, Chief, uh, one thing... You, what are you doing, Hugh? What was that noise? If it was a Model T Ford, it would just... I thought that was his impression. Was that a car? I thought that was a nightingale. Or a duck. Just, no, no, you, know, you know this guy too well. I honestly... Was I thought was having a senior I, body motion. Yeah, yeah, it, was my, it was my nightingale impression, I but was, I was too shy to say. Because I know you're very good on accents, and I thought you did different bird songs as well. Well, it was... Yeah, it was my impression. Well, I just wanted to say... We'll do your bird songs in a future One thing I wanted to say, you can hear that I've had something to say for a bit. I just want to say about La Belle d'Ensemble, is it extraordinarily entertaining and delicious yes. and as a poem to me it's the poetry equivalent of one of the wonderful drawings decadent drawings by Aubrey Beardsley it is just so Aubrey Beardsley. And who's Aubrey is, Beardsley? Hugh? He, well, he is an artist, uh, an engraver from the most decadent period of end of century Victorian art. Right, so 1890s we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, a little bit into the early 20th century. We like decadence. Should but we talk? It's, it's gorgeous. It. It's he the way he does it. It's absolutely compelling. Mm. That's the point. Yes, there were all sorts of bishops and people said no, we don't like Aubrey Beardsley, but he could do erotic. Should we have a quick moment of decadence? Well, well I think we've had a lot Let's, of decadence. Should we wrap up with a I moment think of we ought, uh, I think uh, we ought uh, to end with a prayer and clean our mouths up. Well, we should uh, say sorry. Yeah, mouth, yeah, mouth. Let, sorry. Let's, start, let's start with some or, oral decadence. Oh, of course, steady on, man. The, the bewitching, We're lurching. Uh, the bewitching pastry. I'm glad this isn't being filmed. 
the bewitching pastry pigs and all that gorgeous food that we have at Gatsby's party opens chapter two, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, all that lovely food, which, of course, might remind us of the the jellied fruits that and the lucent and jellied fruits that uh, Porphyria in another Keats poem, Eve of St. Agnes, yeah, lays right, at the right. bedside of his sleeping mistress. All that, of course, comes from the satirican Petronius, Petronius Arbiter. Is, yeah, right. Trimalchio. Okay. Trimalchio, yeah, yeah. Which Trimalchio is, is the freed slave, isn't he? Who yeah. holds the banquet, the most extraordinary banquet. One of those banquets where you cut a cow over The Gatsby birds, figure. Yeah, yeah, he is the Gatsby yeah, figure. He's yeah, got yeah, Gatsby's yeah. clock. He's got Gatsby's, exactly. yeah, got yeah. Gatsby's scarlet cloak. there's a goose inside a swan. Yeah. And and, a, yeah a sparrow inside Roman, a quail. The Roman uh, short story, I suppose we could call it that. Yeah. Uh, but Petronius, Petronius Arbiter, yeah, who yeah, was absolutely, he was called Petronius Arbiter. That's kind of a nickname, isn't it? He was Nero's judge, wasn't he? And that was the, right. that was the age of the great age of Roman this decadence. This is self-indulgence, it, right? It is, and of course, it's the last moment of Roman civilization. Yeah, it's the yeah. decadence of the last moment of Re- Roman civilization, right. which Fitzgerald is echoing in the Gatsby yeah. in all those wonderful parties, careering in his golden car off the cliff edge tearing away the fresh green this breast is the collapse of, of the western empire what a great tearing apart the breast of the fresh green world and all our hopes yeah oh i want to leave it i i want to leave it at that i have to are say. we going to are we going to leave it there yeah. all, all our hopes well yeah it's very yes it's very instructive it's well, well no i just want to say I, this has been the most extraordinary conversation we i love how much you can appreciate the lushness of keats the dreamlike states of Keats, the lushness of Fitzgerald, those dreamlike, dreamy, dreamlike states that he produces as well. You've done a fantastic job of bringing well, Keats and I, Fitzgerald I have to together. say thank you to both of you. Yeah, and, yeah, and of course, yeah. thank you to your listeners for persevering to the very end and listening <laughs> out for those high moments when my voice appeared above those of your usual presenters. So we were thank shouting. you, listeners. Yeah. Richard Marriott, it's been amazing. We've been so happy thank to you. have you here as our first ever guest on The been wonderful. It's been, it's been, yeah. a, it's been an honour. It's been a real honour. Not going to let you go just yet because we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, it's National Air Traffic Control oh. Day today and I, uh, Hugh and I are just going to talk. We I don't know, we're just going to pull out of the bag, pull out of the bag yes. some flight experience we've had. I'd like to tap into you, Richard, one final time. Tell us about uh, a memorable experience you've had on an airplane. That'll be right after the break. Welcome back to the Anarchist Monastery, Season 2, Episode 1. We've had an amazing time. We've been talking uh, to Richard Marriott about uh, John Keats, and uh, the the odes and la la uh, la um, belle dame sans merci. We've been talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, chiefly the great Gatsby, and and the connection between the two. We've had a fantastic, uh, uh, edifying, robust conversation with Richard. And before I let him go today. Um, it is uh, one of our regular slots on the Anarchist Monastery. We take a national day and we 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 talk about uh, we talk about what that's about and our, our perhaps our own experiences of um, of the subject. Today is National Air Traffic Control Day, and uh, I want to therefore ask Hugh and Richard uh, one of their favourite experiences uh, on an airplane. Hugh, let's begin with you. What have you done? Yeah, the first thing, when uh, Daniel brought this up, the first thing he asked me is, have you travelled by air? Because he knows I just stay at home. 
um, and he's the one that's meant to go around the world and uh, and I've been learning about the world from books and stuff like that it's been great um, so I have traveled very little on airplanes and there was a time when when people asked me if I'd ever flown I was able to say absolutely genuinely well not as a passenger oh okay yeah that's and that time that's has intriguing. passed Were you in I hostess? can no longer say no, I was um, I was actually in the cockpit uh, with uh, my mother's partner who took me up in his little plane. He had been a fighter pilot in the war. In fact, one of the things he'd done in the war was um, was train Australians to fly bombers and things like that, you know, so he knew an awful lot about flying. He took me up because uh, he had a plane down in Cornwall where, uh, where my mother and he were living, and so I was taken off there for some special treat, but he was always very demanding and challenging, and he thought he'd catch me out, and so... So he, uh, while I was sat next to him, he just said, "Right, it's yours now," and handed over the uh, the controls to you me. You were flying. You you were. I was flying in so, charge. You so had- yes, I have. That was the first time I'd flown. And um, when people said, "Have you flown?" I said, "Well, yeah, not as a passenger." And that was such a nice reply. Since then, I've spoilt it by going to Croatia on an aeroplane and going to Hungary. And uh, it was one of the regrets I had as I boarded It's a good plane. line. You should never have travelled after that. Yeah, I lost the That's anecdote. Yeah, no. yeah, the anecdote went down. Yeah, absolutely. So you I should... can't say it anymore. No, you should have eschewed all flight yeah. unless you Made were piloting so it. That yeah, the one. That's, yeah. that's the flight. Yeah. Yeah. Let this be a warning to everybody yeah. listening. It's amazing. Yeah. Richard, what's, what's your experience well, of flying? What have you got for us? You know, the wings of poesy, obviously. Back to Keats again for a moment. And I'm, I'm with Hugh on this, really. You know, the interior book-fed world is always superior to the uh, reality that's out there. But I have been on aeroplanes. I'm sure you have. Yeah, I have. Yeah, you're dead right. You've been... yeah, I've got no doubt. <laughs> no, you, you can tell by looking at someone, can't no, you? are really? an aeroplane chap. Yeah, you've, yeah you, you've, can, you've can sort of, you can tell. Yeah, yeah. I have, I've been on those flappy wing things up okay. in the air. Yeah, and so I was on a flight once and we were... I was with somebody who wasn't well, actually, and she'd not been well for a, a while. And um, she had a, a bad attack on, on the flight and... Uh, she had some oxygen with her because she knew she wasn't going to be well. So she took this oxygen because you can take oxygen on flights. And so she took the oxygen and she wasn't. She continued to be unwell. And um, we, were about, we were, you know, about to take up the, the, the stewards were doing all their, you know, miming of what you're doing. Where were if you, you flying land to? On water. We were flying from Kefalonia mm-hmm. back to the UK. Kefalonia, that small island on the uh, western side of Greece. Uh, next to Corfu, mm. well, kind of that area. Mm. Anyway, we were flying there. We, it's, a, it's a small airport, you know, short runway. Um, Got to get it right. Uh, we were on the runway. We were, you know, there was this, that sort of, you know, sound of elephants trampling as the wheels trundle across the concrete. We we were doing that bit, and um, and my wife was was unwell. Now the the, the stewardessy people they hadn't noticed because they were doing the, you know, the, the miming of the what to do if you land on water. Anyway, uh, they finally noticed that she was lying on the lying in the middle of the aisle, and they got her some oxygen. And I think they had four cans of oxygen, which I think was pretty good. They gave her three, and her breathing was still not good at all. It's quite frightening. It, it was bloody frightening. I can tell you, bloody frightening. For her, rather for, than you know. Well, for her, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, there was one, one can of oxygen left, and I was thinking, well, give us that. But they, they saved that one for the pilot, apparently. So that's a little insight. Okay, you know, you just can, in case. You can, you, can, you can be one oxygen cylinder away from death, but they will let you die to make sure that the perfectly healthy pilot, who's never needed oxygen in his life, has oxygen in an emergency. So they looked at me, because she was you know, completely out of it. They looked at me and said, what would you like to do? 
do we halt the flight? Now, everybody on their aeroplane is, of course, interested because you've got a passenger in the aisle, you're about to take off, and they hear the words, do you want to halt the flight? I can see all these heads craned over the oh, neck, over bo- their headrest. Oh, this is box office. Uh, yeah, 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 you know. And so, I love this. So, you know, I, it was such a moment of power. And the thought, <laughs> the thought that I could actually stop this plane and, you know, and I thought of all these hundreds of lives, because they're crowded, these bloody holiday flights, all these hundreds of lives on the plane, these people who wouldn't make it to work next day, wouldn't pick the kids up. Da, 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 da. So uh, anyway, I kept, them, I kept them wait a bit. And then I said, we're taking off. And did they cheer? Was there a clap? No. What happened to my to companion, yeah, yeah. I'm afraid, is... Don't tell us. No. I'm not, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Not now, because it would bring it, would bring it down. Oh, my God. It would bring it the down. The mystery. Yeah, so I, I'm back to you. We'll for just leave your... that trailing. An ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Uh, yeah. yeah but a, no, mere, a mere f- a vapour trail in the sky. Back to you. Amazing. Um, I think the best I can do for National Air Traffic Control Day, uh, there is a poem in my memoir called Extravagant Stranger, and uh, I'd, um, I'd, I'd like to read the poem about flying. I think it works. It's called Five People and One Animal I've Sat Next to on Planes. Five people and one animal I've sat next to on planes. The pearly king of Croydon, in full gear, 20 kilograms of buttons on his three-piece threads and matching pearly cap. He disappears at customs in Bombay. The bloke in business class who drinks so much he pukes all over his shell suit, gathers his carry-on from the overhead, returns from the toilet wearing a pristine clone, tags attached. Rusty nail, please, love. The Canadian woman who knows I am James Woods, the famous actor. Convinced I am lying. Lying's your job, James. She threatens to hit me till the crew step in to mediate for the next six hours. The Saudi princess who boards at Jeddah covered up to the eyeballs, burqa, niqab, in her hands a pile of censored magazines. Seatbelt sign switched off. She returns from the loo, hair down to her waist, heavily made up in a sequined top and Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. The farmer on Bangladesh B-Man who cooks his lunch in seat 29C on a Kala gas stove and eats with the crew. Never happier to land in Chittagong. A goat on the return leg back to Dhaka. Wow. Very evocative. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. I took an internal flight in Bulgaria once and somebody had a chicken in a basket on (laughs) her knee. Wonderful. And, And there were people standing up when they took off. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Wow. Yeah. It's quite, this was in Bulgaria, you know, we're not, you know, it's right. first world country. I've, see, I, I've, see, I've seen all that happen on airplanes wow, as well. Yeah. Right. So that's our little input for national Yeah, I just want control. to say, oh, I think Hugh, that Hugh for, for our listeners and everything and for me, but I'm feeling it for me, so I'm quite sure that listeners will be feeling it too. We need some closure about Richard's story, about the, uh, the unfortunate companion you had on the travel. So 
Is she still alive? Yes, she's still alive. That, I think that's the sort of Good thing I would like the listeners yeah. to know. I wouldn't yeah. have slept. I certainly wasn't. Okay, to know no, no, fair, fair point, fair point. I mean, I, you know, I, I was, I, I was leaving it vapor trailing, thinking that you're going to invite me back just to hear the end of the story. No, no, because, no, 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 because I leave. would. Oh, that like, was your guarantee of getting yeah. back in the yeah, room. Yeah, absolutely. Was it? But, you know, no, that. Hugh obviously doesn't want me back, but, but I would I'm like to say, I'm too sensitive. We'd love too sensitive. I have to be able to wait that time for you to come back. And we are going to do a poetry um, edition, aren't we, that's sometime a, during this actual um, series. Wow. I wow. think so. So if you're available, you will mm. be hearing about it and we'll mm. be trying to get you back for more shouting sessions. Well, I've loved every moment yeah. of it. So, you know, thank you to your listeners. Mm. Thank you to you both. It's been great. Thank you, of course, to Ian, who's been just wonderful. Oh, hasn't he been good? He's, he's been, he has been wonderful. Can't do it without him. No, no. But, you know, you, you, got, you guys have been fantastic. It's been better and I had huge expectations of enjoying myself, but it's been. I hope they've been met better, more than met, superseded. It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Podcasting is fun. It's great. People should do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Richard Merritt, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show. Hugh and I have enjoyed ourselves immensely, I have to say. So we have a coming up for the next episode. Then, as I mentioned before, we have a special episode when I interview uh, uh, Lawrence Sorgner. Uh, uh, Stefan Lawrence Sorgner, uh, who is a uh, philosophy professor at John Cabot University in Rome. And I chatted to him uh, last week about uh, his specialities, really, which were, would be transhumanism and post-humanism. So we have a special episode coming up. That'll be episode two, Connolly and Sorgner going at it, going head to head in Rome. And to bring this episode to a, to a conclusion, um, thank you both, as always, Hubertine, uh, uh, my uh, my brother in arms. Yeah, goodbye, y'all. And from Richard Marriott. Goodbye to everybody. Thank you. And from me, Daniel Roy Connolly, coming to you from the Anarchist Monastery. It's been real, and we look. For, I look forward immensely to you tuning in and being with us again. Thank you so much, folks. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>